and welcome to the Vaccine Challenge. Our mission is to speed up the distribution of the COVID-19 vaccine by bringing to light all of the supply chain and distribution challenges involved with this mega task and by connecting the various stakeholders that can benefit from working together. I'm Priyanka and I'm in conversation with Jamie Schaff, Chief Data Scientist of the New York Department of Health and Mental Hygiene, as well as member of the COVID-19 Emergency Response Task Force. Jamie is an absolute force of nature. She's assisted various emergency responses in India and Africa prior to this for health and refugee crises. She's an epidemiologist and is pursuing a PhD in health equity and social justice at Johns Hopkins. I'm sure you remember how bad things had gotten from a COVID standpoint in New York last summer. I'm going to be talking to Jamie about how her department reacted to all of the challenges as they were developing, the role that data had to play in orchestrating the response, and how did the department address all other issues arising from the pandemic within the communities in New York. I also ask how emergency departments across the world share knowledge amongst each other so that we're better prepared collectively next time around. A lot to uncover, so let's jump right in. Hi there, Jamie. Thank you so much for taking out the time to chat with me today. I am really, really excited. Love is an introduction to yourself and how you ended up at the task force for COVID response for New York City during the pandemic. Hi, my name is Jamie Schaff. I am currently the chief data scientist for the New York City Department of Health and Mental Hygiene's COVID-19 response. My background is quite varied. I actually came from a humanitarian career into domestic public health. My work internationally was with many different large NGOs working on humanitarian emergencies ranging from malnutrition to infectious disease outbreaks to refugee crises um, to food insecurity emergencies. And I believe that all of that experience has been really, really helpful to prepare me for a role like this. Um, I've never worked on an emergency like this before for this amount of time, and it has truly been such an interesting and it's been an, it's really been an honor to serve. Uh, could you maybe describe the scope of work for this task force, Jamie? Absolutely. So we lead the health response for the emergency in New York City. I in particular lead an emergency response group called the Integrated Data Team. And our role is to ensure the agency and response leadership have access to accurate and timely information to make decisions. So we work closely with partners throughout the response uh, to provide the data-driven background to the New York City response. And generally our work is to um, mitigate the impacts of COVID-19 in New York City. That's awesome. So let's talk about data then for a second. What kind of data did you rely on uh, in order to make real-time decisions, especially as New York was grappling with a massive surge in in infection during the second wave uh, last year? That is an excellent question. Data in this response, I think, has been one of the most interesting evolutions. Um, You know, we started off with very little data available, and we were really trying to find anything that we could to inform the response. And at this stage, I think you see across the world, we have access to incredibly rich data, which is really fantastic. So um, for this particular response, our colleagues in surveillance and epidemiology and the public health laboratory have done a really, really terrific job bringing in data on 
COVID-19, which includes data on testing, hospitalizations, and deaths. Um, they look at uh, confirmed cases and probable cases um, for all three of those metrics. And that's been a really, really important piece of our day-to-day -day awareness for the response. Depending on the phase, we've also worked with data from a variety of different sources, including warehouse, so for supplies of medical items such as PPE and ventilators. We've also been working closely with our emergency response colleagues to gather data on emergency response runs across the city. Um, we've used mobility data from a variety of different sources, which has been made available at an extremely granular level for the majority of the response, which has been really nice to help us understand how much New Yorkers actually reduce their contact during mm -hmm. different mitigation phases. And we've also worked really closely with some academic partners to do a bunch of pandemic modeling. At the very beginning, they, we were meeting with them daily to get daily projections. And then in the last few months, we've been meeting with them weekly to model out different types of mitigation measures and reopening scenarios. Um, also throughout the response, we've relied on data from jurisdictions around the world, which I think is a really important piece, just the importance of data sharing in emergencies, especially in a global pandemic. Absolutely. That's that's just so incredible how many different uh, parties and um, their specific data sets have been required in order for you guys to see a complete picture, right? Because without that, there can't be one centralized response. I'm curious, what kind of technology did you have in place in order to get this uh, bird's eye view, right, of what the supply and demand was as and when things were needed and as everything was unfolding in real time. Such a challenging piece of the puzzle. In the early days, we were there were a lot of different sources and a lot of different data sources that we were trying to piece together. Um, New York State has a really fantastic hospital survey that provided a daily snapshot of bed, bed availability and, and bed census at every hospital. And so that gave us an idea of how many beds they had just physically available at their hospital. And when they switched from um, a standard bed to an ICU bed, we could we could actually see that real time. And looking over the course of the pandemic, you just really see how much our hospitals have done to surge up and make sure that they were providing the best care possible for the patients in New York City. Um, we also relied a lot on our colleagues working at different spaces, so both at traditional hospitals, urgent care centers, and at some of the field hospitals to better understand some of the aspects that were, that may not have been captured by the data. So this could include um, information on staffing shortages or PPE needs um, so that we could make sure that we are getting them the supplies as we had them available. Wow, just, just such a terrific effort. Uh, you mentioned earlier that you were also tracking numbers uh, and models from outside of New York or even outside of the U.S. If I remember correctly, Italy was probably one of the first countries to go through a massive surge ahead of New York. Of course, uh, fast forward to now, we're speaking in May of 2021, and then India is going through their deadly second wave. I'm curious, how does how does that work? What kind of numbers or models do you track outside of New York itself, and how does that happen? So it's really evolved over the course of the pandemic. In the early days, we had so little information. I think the majority of our information at first was coming from um, scientific colleagues in China and then eventually South Korea. And then as, you know, 
the outbreaks made their way over to Europe, we started to see more and more about the impact in in Italy and in Spain. Um, so all of that information has been really, really critical to both helping us prepare and and to even understand what was coming. I think the most important data point at the very beginning was about the case fatality rate. And I'm not sure if you remember, but in the winter of 2019 and early 2020, we were talking about COVID as though it was a really bad flu and starting to see the fatality rates among the known cases or the probable cases was something that really shook the way that we were thinking about this pandemic and was mm-hmm. really critical to help us understand and and even plan. Um, now, things are a little bit different. We, um, I think there's no better example of the need for global health equity than we have today. Uh, we're really tracking the variants in different countries and the way that they are behaving, um, specifically related to the severity of the disease and also on the efficacy of different vaccines. There are so many unknowns at this point, but making sure that we have as much information as possible about the different variants, where they are, and what their impacts might be have been helpful in many of our planning discussions in the last few months. That makes sense. Can you can you contextualize who is involved in this task force? So it obviously sounds to me like there's a lot of different kinds of data keeping that's required, obviously about what what the other strains across the world are. But is this, um, who, are the, who are other members uh, that comprise of this task force? Is there, is there some collaboration um, with the federal agencies, whether that's the FDA or warp speed and whatnot? How, how exactly does it work? So in New York City, we have, so at least at my agency, which is the Department of Health, we have something called the Incident Command System, which is activated in an emergency. So each of us have an emergency response role, and in the event of an emergency, we can be called in to serve in an emergency response. And that is um, my typical role. So my day-to-day job is not in COVID. It's it's typically actually in mental health. For other city agencies, every agency has their own plan, but at this point, we basically work across all agencies in the city, um, especially if there's uh, you know something that's particularly impacting congregate settings or uh, places that are providing shelter for people. Um, And then generally we coordinate quite closely with our colleagues in New York State and then at the federal level. Um, From a data perspective, we really do collaborate with folks all over the place. Um, I think in the first couple of weeks of, of our response, I was communicating with people literally around the world and across the country. It it was truly an incredible experience to see people come together to try and support. I um, definitely sent out emails and had calls with so many of my professors from Harvard and from Hopkins about, um, you know, is this correct? Do you think that there's something else that we could be doing? What are your thoughts? And people just really went above and beyond to provide as much information as possible. And it's, it's truly been an incredible collaborative effort. Oh, that's that's so heartwarming and that's so amazing. It it really does take a village, doesn't it? Always so much chatter about data ownership and things like that. Uh, I'm just curious what happens in situations like these. So obviously it's an emergency, data sharing, um, and you know cross uh, cross border learning, etc. is important. Um, what does end up happening to data ownership when it comes um, when it comes to something like this? That's a really interesting question. I it's. I think it really varies. Um, my 
personal. So our unit doesn't necessarily focus on the academic piece. And we're really trying to get as much data out there as possible while also ensuring that it is as correct as it can be at the speed at which we need data. Other colleagues may be more focused on academic publications. And I think generally you're in a response like this, you're really relying on um, on people to be honest, so sharing data, but also making sure that folks are included in publications if those data are being used for a publication. Um, so we've seen some really great uh, academic and non-academic partnerships in that. Um, and then I think generally it's it's an emergency. So at, at, on some level, the you know we need to inform the public and make sure that we have all the data that we need to inform the the. Um, the response. But at the same time, we have to protect patient privacy. And that is a really, really, really critical piece of what we do. We want to provide as much data as possible while protecting patient privacy. Um, and even if there were waivers in the event of an emergency, we still feel that it's our duty to ensure um, protection of patient patient privacy. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, talk to me a little bit about um policy decisions, uh, if any, that were being this time. I can imagine that because there's no precedence uh, for any of any of this as it was happening, were there any policy de decisions that had to be made by the task force? Yes, um, so many. So I think if we go all the way back to the beginning, uh, conversations about closing schools, about implementing stay-at-home orders, about mandating testing in different venues or for different populations of people. Um, as we started to reopen, thinking about capacity limits for indoor settings and you know face covering requirements, I think now there's a lot related to vaccine and who's eligible for vaccine, how the vaccine will be distributed and um, what populations will be at some point perhaps mandated to receive a vaccine. Um, so there are a number of policy decisions and they are so co complicated and complex. Um, but yes, it's been a very interesting and evolving conversation from a policy perspective. And then is this, are these decisions then that can be made just at the state level um, and, and, you know, and doesn't really have to be something, uh, you know, that that's necessarily uh, at a federal level. Yes, absolutely. So I think quite a, f quite a lot of our policy decisions were implemented at the state level or at the city level even. Um, you really do rely on a lot of coordination between um, our different government officials. So, uh, for example, um, a citywide pause that was implemented by the governor and then different levels of reopening um, are done in close coordination. So you really, we're all working together for a common cause. Got it. Um, well, let's shift gears a little bit. Uh, I know that uh, COVID response has been amazing and there's, you know, various um, groups across the world, across cities, across countries that's been tackling uh, COVID, uh, the virus and, um, you know, and the disease. Um, but of course, the pandemic has had a lot of ancillary impacts. Um, you know, a lot of people have had to do, have had to go through a lot of firsts, right? People stuck in homes, um, you know, uh, the social fabric completely changing because of lockdowns and so on and so forth, which obviously adds to a lot of additional issues just from just because of the nature of the pandemic and lockdowns that it required. Um, given that you've got such an enriching background, all kinds of emergency response um, situations, 
I'm curious to hear, how was that tackled? Um, we're talking about the ancillary impacts of COVID. Um, gosh, so many. So health emergencies, emergencies in general, have a way of bringing health inequities and um, different types of disparities to the forefront. And I think we have seen that across the country. We've seen that across the world. Um, and it, at different phases of the response, we've had the opportunity to really focus on different populations of people. Um, some of my prior work has been on uh, domestic and intimate partner violence. And we knew that uh, any pandemic that involved mitigation measures that revolved around stay-at-home orders meant that people may be kept at home in unsafe environments. There's an incredible group of people across New York City that that have been really dedicated to this topic over the last few years. And so in the first couple of weeks of the response, we developed a really small task force where we brought together data that were available related to domestic and intimate partner violence and made sure that we are continuing these conversations on a weekly basis um, so that we could connect folks to care or at least know what services were not going to be av available to people and to work through different ways to connect folks to care. Um, that's been, that's a really critical piece. I think in general, we need to be thinking about the populations that are typically not going to be as obvious. Um, so, you know, generally we have uh, populations in New York City that are, that have very low population estimates or populations that may not be as well counted, for example. And it's very, very important in all health emergencies that we make sure that we create space for those populations and specific and targeted interventions for them. So we have a number of partners across the response who are really focused on these populations and um, are working closely with these communities to ensure we are bridging the gaps as we can. So yeah, that, that's incredible. I'd, I'd love to hear if you have any personal favorite story of what came out of the work you did uh, from this intervention. Sure. So from the domestic violence and intimate partner violence perspective, um, so we created a data dashboard, which has been very helpful, and we developed a few different provider communications. So recognizing that people may be unable to seek safe shelter or um, that people may not be able to access the services that are typically provided, we worked with partners who are typically providing these services in person to ensure that the services were provided remotely. And then we monitored the available data to see if we were seeing upticks. So what we did notice is there was an uptick in website views for the domestic and intimate partner violence website for the city, which suggested that there was a much larger problem than we knew about. So as we started to do hyperlocal responses and mobile testing, we made sure that all of the teams on the ground had um, information available for people in case they were seeking help. And we also helped um, work with providers so that they knew what types of questions to ask or what to look for as they started to see patients again. Wow, 
that's that's fantastic. Uh, well, now, so fast forward uh, one year, obviously, uh, you know, compared to the lockdowns when they first started happening in March of last year, and then we're in May 2021. Um, I'm curious, what are the challenges now? Uh, of course, New York has done an incredible job vaccinating a, a large portion of the population. Um, what's the work that's happening now? Uh, and what are some challenges involved with it? Sure. So, you know, right now we're in a period in the United States, at least, where access to vaccine is quite good. Um, we completely recognize that this is not the case in much of the in much of the world. And at least for us in New York City, that vaccination rates of the rest of the world really do impact New York City. Um, so that's something that we are really um, focusing on from an advocacy perspective to see if there are opportunities to support global vaccination efforts. Here in New York City, we know that we knew from the beginning that equitable distribution of vaccine was going to be a challenge. And that's something that we are um, both monitoring the data on daily and also developing different types of targeted initiatives for populations that have lower vaccination rates. So as we start to reopen really, really working to support the connections of folks in New York City who have not yet been vaccinated to available vaccine, um, making sure that folks have the ability to ask all of their questions so that they can make an informed decision, um, and making sure that we are working with providers so that they have the information needed to respond to questions from community members. So that's really one of the most important pieces at the moment, as is the monitoring of different variants around the, around the world, and seeing what the impact could be in New York City. So I think, you know, all of our work as a globe right now in this pandemic is more important now than ever as, as we start to want to reopen while many, many places don't yet have access to a vaccine. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess inequitable distribution of vaccine is such, such an interesting topic in and of itself because Obviously, on one hand, there's inequitable distribution from a country perspective. But then even when you start talking about, you know, specifically a city as large as New York City, there's inequitable dis distribution even within the city. What are the top two or three reasons why people may not be vaccinated or may not have gotten vaccinated yet? Is it is it because they don't want to? Is it because they can't take a day off from work? Is it because they don't know where to get it? What are some of the key reasons? There are so many reasons that people have either not yet been vaccinated or are opting not to get vaccinated. And I think it's our it's really our job as public health professionals and as health professionals to make sure that folks have the information that they need. Um, I think in general, there's so much misinformation out there. It's it's difficult to be confident in a vaccine that is relatively new. And it's our it's literally our job to make sure that we're getting information to folks so that we can help answer questions and, and help people make an informed decision about their vaccine choices. There is a piece of the side effect from vaccines that it does impact many people in New York City and around the world, especially if it means that they may have to miss work. Um, despite all of the laws and regulations that provide for paid sick leave, we know that many New Yorkers don't have access to paid sick leave or don't feel comfortable advocating for for themselves to access that sick leave. Mm. So for a person to be able to get vaccinated, I think making sure that we have the the maximum amount of flexibility in terms of the available providers and times in which vaccine 
services are provided is really, really critical. Um, and then I think we really do need to recognize the history of medical racism, um, especially in the United States. This greatly impacts many, many communities, particularly communities of color. And it's important that we understand the history so that we can work towards a better future. What kind of lasting impacts do you think there are going to be as a result of the pandemic in behaviors that might need to be addressed, Jamie? Oh, well, there's a lasting impacts that I think there will be and what I hope there will be, which hopefully aren't too different. Um, you know, I think as we move into a period where we have a vaccine that has been developed, we have technology where vaccines can be developed rapidly. We have better um, treatment regimens at hospitals um, and we have better access to testing. I think that there's so there are so many resources out there um, that are available to people, at least here in the United States. So I think we're going to start moving into a time where we will work with people to ensure that they have the information they need to make choices that reduce harm, both for themselves and for their communities around them. Despite all of this, there are still many people who cannot be vaccinated because of underlying health conditions. Um, there are people for whom it's really not safe to be around people with COVID mm. because of their underlying conditions or other risk factors. And I think we need to be working to protect ourselves and our communities and, and make sure that we are checking people's vaccination status um, connecting ourselves and others to testing services if we if we think that we may have been exposed. That um, I think ideally in a perfect world, we'll, we'll have a place where people aren't going to work sick or symptomatic so that, you know, we do embrace more work at home if people are sick. Um, and even mask wearing. Um, many countries around the world have populations that adopt mask wearing either during um, flu season or in periods of high pollution or mm -hmm. um, if a person feels sick. And I would love to get to a place where um, we start to adopt some of these practices ourselves. Absolutely. Well, what, what do you think um, are going to be the biggest learning then from this event? I mean, there's... Uh, it's been it's been such a such a journey really um for everyone um as this year has passed on how do you think we can be prepared better for a similar event in the future obviously some of the stuff that you mentioned just now um help towards that for sure right mask wearing and things like that it, it actually would be nice to not get the flu for a change <laughs> um uh, for a year right um, and that becomes really difficult but aside from that yeah what do you think are the biggest learnings from this event Oof, that is a very big question. Biggest learnings, I think one is that we better understand the impact of One Health on global health and public health. We understand the transmission of disease. Um, I think as an epidemiologist, it's very interesting now to have people know what that is. Um, and I hope that people, I, I feel like people will start to understand disease transmission patterns a bit better. But I think ultimately the biggest learning from this event is that structural racism has a massive impact on populations. And in an emergency, those populations face even greater challenges. And we really do need to critically assess the structures that we have here, especially the structures that perpetuate health inequities, um, 
And we need to address them. We need to, you know, stop talking about equity and stop talking about health equity and really, really dismantle the systems that are that are keeping people unwell. Yeah. And I guess, I mean, there's been there's been uh, so much incredible work that your team has done. And similarly, there are so many other emergency response teams across the world uh, doing similar work, um, you know, maybe taking different approaches. Uh, as far as you're aware, do you know if there's an exchange of information or a pooling of all of this knowledge that's happening so we're better prepared in the future? I I think so. Um, you know, we are talking about that internally here about what are the lessons learned from this response and how do we learn from this and create better infrastructure for emergency responses? What type of training do staff need before an emergency so that they're better prepared during an emergency? Um, and I think generally the importance of community wisdom on the informing our response has never been more clear. So working really closely with communities to better understand what what they're experiencing. I think that's a piece that we definitely need to work on together as a city, as a country, as a, as a global community to really understand what type of systems we need to put in place so that we can ensure that um, we have the information that we need to make effective decisions in a timely way. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, well, so finally then, uh, a role that you'd signed up uh, for three weeks originally has obviously been going on uh, all the way up until now. Um, when do you think this is going to be uh, the end of it? When do you think we're going to be in a position where, A, um, you don't have to do this work anymore because the pandemic will have effectively been behind us? Oh, I have no idea. If I've learned anything from this pandemic, it is that this is a virus that is unpredictable and we need to be prepared for the unpredictable. So, you know, I think while we're responding to new variants, while we, and, and honestly, until the entire world is vaccinated with a vaccine that is effective against every variant, um, we're, we're still going to be working on this here in New York City. Yes, that's... Uh, yeah, that, that that just really puts into perspective um, that it doesn't matter if there's one part of the world um, that has high levels of vaccination, because like you mentioned, if other parts of the world are not vaccinated and if this virus mutates into deadlier strains, then there's always going to be um, the challenge or the possibility um, that it does uh, migrate to the other part of the world. Um, but thank you so much for taking out the time to chat with me, Jamie. It's been so incredible learning all of the amazing work that you've done. Um, and thank you so much for stepping up in uh, times of such difficulty. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. And it has truly been an honor of a lifetime to be part of such an incredible team of people working so hard to, um, to improve the health of people and to blunt the impact of COVID-19 on our communities. Thank you. That is it for today from us at the Vaccine Challenge. We continue to work towards our mission of bringing to light all of the supply chain and distribution challenges that can help speed up the distribution of the COVID-19 vaccines world over. If you're doing anything worthwhile in this space, have any suggestions of who you should talk to or any other ways that we can improve the podcast, please write to us at contact us 
at thevaccinechallenge.com. Until then, stay safe, stay responsible. This is us signing off from The Vaccine Challenge.